When I was a kid, I hadn't wanted to be a mathematician at all. Actually, when I grew up, I wanted to be a spy. And this was uh, partly fueled by too many visits to the cinema to see James Bond movies, and, and also by my mother, who'd um, worked for the Foreign Office. And when she had children, she had to leave the Foreign Office. Uh, but she told us, me and my sister, that uh, she was allowed to keep the black gun that every member of the Foreign Office gets given, and uh, that this black gun was hidden somewhere in the house. And so me and my sister used to spend all our childhood trying to find where this gun was, and we can never find it. Uh, they'd all taught her the art of concealment very well as well. Um, so I resolved that when I grew up, I, I would become a spy like my mother. She'd been in the Foreign Office, so I thought, ah, so I must join the Foreign Office if I'm going to realize this dream to become a spy. Um, so when I went up to school, uh, I thought, Foreign Office, okay, that's languages. So I started signing up for all the languages that my school did. Um, they did French and German. Uh, it's probably one of the last comprehensive schools at the time to do Latin. I signed up for that as well. Um, on the BBC, they were doing a Russian course. And you can tell, being a, a boy brought up in the Cold War, I thought this was a very good uh, language to learn to become a spy. So I got my French teacher to help me with the Russian course. Um, but as I wrestled with these languages, I got more and more frustrated. Um, they were all kind of strange spellings that you had to learn, uh, the irregular verbs, which didn't seem to make any sense at all. Um, the Russian course I was a complete disaster. I couldn't get past the word for hello, which has so many consonants and no vowels, it's absolutely impossible to say. It was also the name of the course, which really frustrated me. I couldn't even say the name of the course. Um, uh, so I, I was getting very disillusioned with this uh, dream of mine to become 0017. Um, and it was about that time, when I was about 12 or 13, that my mathematics teacher, uh, in the middle of the class, uh, suddenly said, DeSotoy, I want to see you after the class. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. So I, I went up after the class, and um, he took me around the back of the maths block, and I thought, I'm really in trouble now. Um, but then he, he took out his break time cigar and said to... Apparently, he wasn't allowed to smoke in the common room, and he had to come around here to have his cigar. And um, he said, I think you should find out what mathematics is really about, because it's not really about the things we're doing in the classroom, the sort of long division, percentages, and things like this. It's something much more exciting. And he recommended a few books to me that he thought might open up this world of mathematics to me. So that weekend... Um, I grew up in Henley-on-Thames, uh, here in Oxfordshire. Uh, our local academic city was here in Oxford. Um, and so my father brought me up to... We were being told about a, a good shop called Blackwell's. Apparently it would have these books, um, my dad had been told. So uh, I was a little bit disappointed when, when I came to Blackwell's. This looked like a very small shop front. I thought, um, surely this can't have many books in it. Um, but it's a, a little bit like the TARDIS. You know, when you go in, suddenly it's on the inside, it's so much bigger than on the outside. And so we, we went down into the Norrington Room, which is sort of, uh, as many of you have been down there, it's like an Aladdin's clay, cave of science books. Um, and my father went around trying to find the books on the list. And I just wandered around picking books off the shelf. And I, I looked inside and I... I really couldn't understand a word. It seemed to be all in some strange code. Uh, but there were undergraduates leaning up against the shelves, uh, reading these things, engrossed in them. It looked like there was some wonderful story, a novel going on inside there. So I was very intrigued uh, what it was that they found so exciting. So I took these books home, and I started to get sucked into this world of mathematics. And one of the books that my teacher had recommended was very intriguingly called The Language of Mathematics. Um, I still have uh, the book that we bought that morning in Blackwell's. Um, it costs £1.25. I, I defy you to find a book in Blackwell's now costing £1.25. Um, uh, but I started reading this book, and I was very intrigued because I'd never really thought of mathematics as a language. Um, but as I began to read this, I, I understood it was an incredibly powerful language. For a start, it appealed to my sense of logic. You know, I didn't want irregular verbs and strange spellings. There were lots of strange twists and turns and surprises, but what was so fun is that all of those surprises made perfect logical sense. Um, and as I began to read this, I realized how powerful a language mathematics is for describing 
the world around us, to understand where our world has come from and to make predictions about where it's going to go in the future. For example, if you go to uh, the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, you know, it's amazing how nature, nature doesn't produce just strange, random things. You know, there are all these hexagons suddenly thrusting out of the ground. You know, what is it about uh, the shape of the hexagon that nature loves so much? Uh, we see it, in, of course, in another place as well. The honeycomb um, builds its structure, the bee builds its structure using a mathematical geometric shape. And there's a rather nice quote that I like from the Arabian Nights uh, where the bee says, my house is constructed to the laws of a most severe architecture and Euclid himself could learn from studying the geometry of my cells. Well, actually, Euclid couldn't understand why the bee or the giant's causeway was using these hexagons. It, in fact, took 2,000 years for us to understand mathematically why nature chooses hexagons. Why, for example, isn't the bee making the honeycomb out of squares or triangles? They also perfectly tile um, the plane. Well, it turns out that very recently, in the last decade, mathematicians were able to prove that if you've got an area of a, fi a fixed area and you want to create the least amount of walls, you don't want to waste space, um, waste wax creating walls, then in fact, the hexagon is the most efficient way. It uses the least wax to contain um, that air, a fixed area for the cell. But we only understood this using the mathematics uh, just very recently in the last decade. It's not just shapes that nature uses. Nature also loves using numbers. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the Fibonacci numbers. These were numbers that I learned about in this book, The Language of Mathematics. Um, nature uses these numbers to build things. We find them all over the natural world. They're somehow nature's favorite numbers. They start with 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21. You get the next number by adding the two previous numbers together. They generate themselves by the last two numbers, give you the next one. And these are really nature's favorite numbers. For example, if you take a flower and you count the number of petals on a flower... Invariably, it's a number in the Fibonacci sequence. Or sometimes you get um, a, a, a double flower, so you might get double a number in the Fibonacci sequence. And if you haven't got a Fibonacci number, then that just means that a petal has fallen off your flower, um, which is how mathematicians get round exceptions. Um, uh, but actually, uh, Fibonacci, who is credited with um, uh, these numbers are named after, uh, also realized they were very useful to understanding how generations of rabbits grow over time. So, for example, if I take a pair of rabbits, and the rabbits take one month in order to mature before they can have children. So in the second month, there's still just one pair, but it's now become mature, which I've used to color it yellow here. So in the third month, they're able to give birth to another pair of rabbits. And so, you, so now in the third month, you have two pairs of rabbits. In the th fourth month, you get another pair from the first mature pair, but the, sec the second pair is not mature yet, so you get three pairs of rabbits. And Fibonacci understood that the way the evolution of the number of pairs of rabbits grow is determined by these Fibonacci numbers. Um, they're also very important for the way things grow in nature we've seen in flowers, but if, for example, shells as well. The nautilus shell, um, it builds itself in a very similar way. If you take, if you think about a, a snail, it builds a little house, a little room maybe, a one-by-one -one room, and then it outgrows that room and it decides, well, I've got to add another room to my house. But all it knows about is a little one-by-one -one room, so it adds another one-by-one -one room on the side. And now it outgrows that, and it decides, okay, I've got to enlarge my house. Um, so it now, now knows about two-by-two two rooms, because it's added one and one to get two. So it adds another little two-by-two two room on. As it outgrows that, two plus one gives him three, and he can now put a three-by-three three room on. So as he builds and grows, he adds these two previous rooms together to get the next one. And if you put the squares around building the, the house room by room, and you join these up, you can see this beautiful spiral emerging. So I think it's fantastic how mathematics can be used to understand where these things, all these structures and patterns that we see happening in the natural world. But I think perhaps more powerful is the fact that mathematics can help us to predict what's going to happen in the future. 
So, for example, uh, if you look at what's happening in the Large Hadron Collider at the moment, or perhaps what's not quite happening in the Large Hadron Collider, but almost, um, then to be able to predict what sort of particles we're going to be able to see coming out of those collisions actually uses very powerful mathematics. Um, we've already used mathematics to make sense of the strange sort of menagerie of particles that we see coming out of these colliders, these gluons, leptons, muons, we understand that actually they're somehow facets of a strange symmetrical object which lives in a very high-dimensional space. And to be able to make predictions about the things we haven't seen yet, well, it's almost like seeing that there's a facet missing from this shape and there should be something, something there. So mathematics is able to help us to predict what we might see coming out of the Large Hadron Collider. And I think this is the power of math mathematics, to look into the future. It's very important for our society, for example, many viruses, we need to be able to predict and how to manage these viruses. Viruses, again, a symmetrical shape, not in higher dimensions, but the icosahedron or dodecahedron. Um, and in fact, the symmetry of these shapes is why they're so virulent. Symmetry is an incredibly efficient program to replicate itself. Um, a virus has a very small amount of DNA at its heart, so it has a small computer program in order to be able to make itself and symmetry is an efficient way for it to propagate itself. But if you want to be able to make predictions about how, for example, the H1N1 flu virus is going to spread across the world and what you can do to stop it, for example, perhaps we could put severe travel restrictions on to try and stop the spread of this virus. Well, that's going to cause a lot of economic disruption, so you've got to make sure that it's going to work if you're going to implement that. Well, we actually did some mathematical modeling to see what the effect would be of trying to put severe travel restrictions on. And the discovery was that it just delayed the spread of the disease by two weeks. It didn't save any lives. The same number of people would die if you uh, had the restrictions or not. It would just take a, a little bit longer. So people realized that um, it really wasn't worth economically putting those travel restrictions on. But much better to do it using mathematics than to try it and then see what happens. Vaccinations as well, to be able to judge um, how many of the population you should vaccinate before you have a chance to eradicate a disease. Each virus has a number. And mathematics, mathematics gives you a way to give each virus a number which helps you then to be able to make predictions about the spread of this virus and how you can control it. Of course, another very topical subject which we're all worried about um, building up to Copenhagen is climate change. Climate change is a mathematical problem. If you want to be able to work out whether the environment is heating up, you've got to run the mathematical equations to see, yes, that, you know, it's a very simple graph maybe which says we put more CO2 in, the, the um, temperature is going to increase. But the dynamics of the weather are incredibly sensitive, and to be able to understand them involves a huge amount of mathematics. And again, if we want to know what we should do in order to control that, much better to run it mathematically and then to do it rather than to experiment on our planet. And I think another area, I mean, the trouble with the climate and with the weather is that it is a chaotic system. It is very sensitive to changes. And this is one of the problems that mathematics doesn't answer everything, but we can understand when we're going to have difficulties. Another case where perhaps mathematics uh, can help you at least to assess things is in probability and risk. We're constantly being uh, thrown up against uh, situations in our everyday life where we have to make decisions about, should I do this or should I not? And our intuition is incredibly bad in general about risk and probability. If you say one in a million to most people, they think that means it's impossible. But actually, there are 10 million people living in London, so the one in a million chance means there are 10 people who are likely to, I don't know, have committed that murder or whatever. I think one of the most um, difficult problems on the scientific books at the moment is understanding what's happening inside here, the human brain. Um, in particular, what makes you all conscious of yourselves as somebody different um, from the person sitting next to you. And I, one of the exciting things about this new job is that I don't just have to stick to mathematics, but being a, the professor for the public understanding of science, I'm allowed to go out and, and look at other sciences as well. But what always surprises me is how often there is mathematics bubbling underneath the surface. Um, so I was recently um, made a program for the BBC uh, trying to explore what makes 
the brain conscious, about consciousness. And I think for me the most exciting experiment was um, to go off to Madison in the States where they're trying to understand what happens when you go to sleep. Um, they do this thing called transmagnetic uh, stimulation where you get a load of uh, electricity shot through your brain. I thought this might be a very bad idea for me to, to do, but they assured me it was safe. Um, so they did this experiment uh, on me whilst I was awake, um, and then I was required to go to sleep, and they would do the same experiment, um, stimulating a very small bit of the brain, and then by scanning my brain, seeing what the effect of this small bit of stimulation was on the whole of the brain. Well, when I was awake, what happens is when you stimulate a small part of the brain, there's a huge ricochet across the brain and a feedback and back again and feedback. There seems to be a lot of interconnectivity, integration in the brain when you're conscious and awake. But when you go to sleep and that consciousness goes in stage four sleep, when you stimulate that part of the brain, there's no repercussion. There's no connection. It's almost like um, uh, sort of the internet where all the links have gone down. Um, unfortunately, I was so excited to actually see what was going to happen, I failed to go to sleep. Uh, I think, uh, uh, so I was rather a bad, um, uh, it was interesting, the person who did the experiment said he'd never been able to go to sleep either, that um, he was too excited by the whole thing. So, um, but I was shown these experiments on other people. But the interesting thing, they're now trying to understand that integration using mathematics, um, that the idea is that they, they can have even a coefficient of consciousness which is about the interconnectivity of the brain, how much one uh, neuron is connecting to another and feeding back again. And it's very interesting that mathematics seems to be able to help in understanding why a brain, perhaps, of uh, another animal is not reaching some crucial um, threshold which it gains consciousness. So I, I think I wasn't expecting this. I was expecting perhaps um, biological chemical answers. But again, mathematics seems to be bubbling underneath there uh, as key to understanding many of the different sciences, from physics to chemistry to biology to the brain science. So I think mathematics is a very powerful language for exploring the scientific world. But what's nice as well is that I think mathematics is also something that artists too find that they have an affinity with. Because... What we're all interested, I think artists and mathematicians and scientists, is interesting structures. And time and again, I find when I look at um, artists, they're drawn to the same sort of structures that fascinate me as a mathematician. Uh, right back to early days, here are five stones that were carved by um, uh, uh, some artist in Scotland. Um, these stones can actually be found in the Ashmolean Museum here in Oxford. Um, but it's interesting, the artist is trying to explore the different ways of putting patches on these balls in a nice, aesthetic, symmetrical way. Um, it took us uh, uh, another couple of thousand years to understand that these are the only ways, and this is one of the culmination of one of the great books of all time, Euclid's Elements, is a proof that in fact there are only five different sort of ways that you can patch together a shape or make a dice where the, shape, the faces all have the same shape and they're all symmetrical, and they're put together in a symmetrical way. Here again, the power of mathematics to be able to say that you've found them all, to, to be able to prove with 100% certainty that there isn't a sixth shape that you haven't discovered already. Interestingly, um, after this, Archimedes decided, well, what if you have shapes um, which are not all the same, but they're all symmetrical, say squares and triangles, how many different ways can you put those together in a symmetrical way so no point is different from any other? And he discovered another 13 ways that you could put these shapes together. But these were lost for many generations when the, the, the library in Alexandra was burnt down, and it took actually the artists of the Renaissance to be able to somehow recover these shapes that we'd lost. And it was the power of them exploring how to represent three dimensions on a two-dimensional canvas that the challenge of trying to draw platonic solids or Archimedean solids was perfect to realize this new skill that they developed. So time and again, in these paintings of the Renaissance, you see them exploring how to draw these shapes. And gradually, these 13 Archimedean shapes, you can see one of them uh, hanging here, uh, re-emerged. Uh, and it, it's, it's nice, it's not just a one-way traffic. Here are the artists helping to, to recover these shapes that have been lost since Archimedes' day. It's not just three-dimensional shapes that artists are interested in. Um, Dali was very interested in shapes in four dimensions. 
now a little bit harder to draw a four-dimensional shape on a two-dimensional canvas, um, but the way that we can understand four-dimensional shapes, um, for example, if I have a cube, I could unwrap the cube into a two-dimensional piece of paper which looks a bit like a cross with six squares which I can wrap up into three dimensions. Well, Dali uh, was interested in the, uh, the thing that you can do one dimension up. What about a four-dimensional cube? Could I unwrap that into three dimensions and actually see what a four-dimensional cube unwrapped looks like? Well, indeed you can, and if you follow the mathematics, what you find is it's built out of eight cubes, four stacked on top of each other, and then another four arranged around the faces of one of the other cubes. And so this is a picture of what a four-dimensional cube looks like when it's unwrapped into three dimensions. But for Dali, of course, um, it, 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 this idea of uh, somehow the three dimensions being able to wrap up and find some fourth transcendental di dimension uh, was uh, too much to... Uh, uh, he was very excited by the idea of sort of using this in religious connotation. So here he has Christ crucified on this unwrapped, what we call a tesseract, an unwrapped four-dimensional cube in three dimensions. Randomness, again, is another thing that artists love exploring, this tension between structure and randomness. And Gerhard Richter, for example, um, is very obsessed with using randomness to generate his paintings. Um, he chose certain colors that were going to be his palette, but then he would create these uh, five-by-five uh, little uh, pixelated pictures, uh, but the decision about which color he would put in each pixel was made totally randomly. And he said that there were none that he rejected because he didn't like the look of them. He made sure that the mathematics and the randomness was generating um, uh, the actual art. And then he was interested in the different ways that he could put these canvases together. So he, ha he made 196 of these two, five by five canvases. Um, and I was asked, actually, to give a talk at the Serpentine. Uh, this is one of the um, variations. This is variation two, where he decided you could hang all of these 196 canvases up individually, but every now and again he likes to put them together uh, as uh, sort of slightly bigger squares. So here he's put them together in four to make a 10 by 10 um, square. So there are 49 of these canvases. Uh, and he's got, I think, 11 different versions. Um, I can't go to these exhibitions without seeing things in a mathematical way. And so, for me, the immediate question was, well, how many other ways are there that you could put 196 canvases together into squares? And they turn out to be a huge number, and it's related to some really exciting questions of number theory about how you can break 196 into sums of squares. Um, and also the question of randomness. Did he really not throw any away? Can we see that? Um, with, with actually, with 196 canvases, you can test out um, his, uh, you know, whether he has done things randomly. And again, you see this clustering. What's interesting is you go to some of these canvases and you think there is structure inside there. Of course, this is what we're always trying to do. Even when things are random, we're trying to look for patterns inside those canvases. So it's intriguing to go around the exhibition and see, you know, when do you get two colors the same next to each other? Three colors, four colors. What's the mathematics that tells you what the probability of seeing this clustering is? Um, so I, I, I got obsessed with this exhibition, actually. And so um, uh, my wife said, will you please stop talking about Gerhard Richter? Because uh, there seemed to be so much mathematics hidden inside just the, uh, this way of generating these paintings. But I suppose, uh, you know, that's the visual art, so shapes and things like that are important. Um, but of course, there's always been a strong connection, I think, between mathematics and music, that the abstract nature of music means that they're not searching out something visual, but something, something slightly uh, less tangible. And, and I think there are a lot of connections between the language of mathematics and the language of music. Interestingly, those Fibonacci numbers that I showed you right at the beginning, named after Fibonacci, who we believe discovered them because of the rabbits, um, well, actually, he was beaten to the discovery. They shouldn't be called the Fibonacci numbers at all. They should be named after an Indian poet and musician called Hamashandra. Hamashandra found that the Fibonacci numbers were exactly the numbers he needed to work out how many different rhythms there are. Um, so he was interested in producing rhythms with short and long beats. Um, so if you have just one beat in the bar, you can only have one short beat. 
If you've got two beats in the bar, then you can have two short beats or one long beat. But as you build this up, how many different combinations are there? So for example, with four beats in the bar, you can have four short beats, or short, short, long, or short, long, short, or short, long, short, short, or long, long. So you've got five different rhythms that you can build out of these short and long rhythms. Well, what happens when you go to six beats in the bar? Five beats or six beats? Well, actually, the Fibonacci numbers are key to generating the number of different rhythm structures that you can get. Because if I, take, um, the, if I want to know how many there are with five beats in the bar, well, I can take the ones with four beats in the bar and add a short beat. Or I could take the ones with three beats in the bar and add a long beat. So to get the number of rhythms, you add the, ones, the two numbers that you've had before. So in fact, the Fibonacci numbers were discovered, you know, music was giving us these numbers and telling us that um, they're interesting ways of generating structure. But it isn't just rhythms. I suppose if you were going to choose uh, the mathematician's favorite composer, um, most people would say Bach is probably um, the, the one we like most, because Bach was really obsessed with putting interesting structures embedded inside um, his music. Um, when you were coming in, you were listening to one of the Goldberg variations um, uh, before I started my talk. And the Goldberg variations, I think, are uh, a huge amount of mathematics embedded inside here. Um, here's one of the other variations. Bach starts with an aria, uh, and then there are 30 variations, and at the end he repeats the aria again. Um, so almost it's like a circle, because you, you, you join the piece up with the aria at the beginning and the end. And actually, halfway through the piece, the 16th variation, um, Bach calls an overture, which generally you associate with the beginning of a piece. So it's not quite clear where this piece begins or ends. There's kind of circular structure embedded in it. But then there's another circle which appears inside the structure of this thing. Um, every third movement variation is a canon. So a canon is one of these things you probably did at school where somebody starts singing, then a little bit later, a second person sings the same tune and they interweave over the top of each other. Well, Bach wasn't content with simply repeating the same tune, and what he did with each variation, the second voice would take a step upwards and start one note higher. So gradually, as the variations go on and you get each new canon, the second voice is getting higher and higher, until by the eighth canon, you get the octave, which almost sounds like the same note that you started with. So it almost joins the thing up again in another circle, or perhaps a spiral. And so there's kind of a circle's worth of circles embedded in the structure of this piece, um, which mathematicians call a torus. So this is the circle's worth of circles. Again, the variation of the rhythms inside these canons, again, mat very mathematical, and Bach made sure he covered all of the bases. Um, for example, you could break the bar up into two beats, three beats or four beats, and each beat could be quavers, triplets, or semiquavers. So you have nine different possibilities corresponding to the, the nine ways I can spin the triangles on this kind of combination lock. And Bach makes sure that each of the nine canons covers each of the possibilities. And, and I think Bach, uh, it's a, a huge amount of mathematics goes into his uh, compositions. Of course, it's just a framework, and then you have to be creative on top of that. I'm not saying that Mathematics generates the music. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, Mitzler, his student, was right that, that uh, he used to say that Bach's music is the process of sounding mathematics. And I think probably you have to wait till, I think, the 20th century for uh, composers to really take over from Bach and really very deliberately use interesting mathematical structures in the compositions of their pieces. Um, so, for example, Schoenberg's 12-tone system, uh, by throwing away some sort of harmonic structure with the scale, um, you need to put some new structure in. And so what um, Schoenberg did was to look at permutations of the 12 notes in the scale. And so these 12-tone systems, um, he would produce interesting uh, permutations of the 12 notes, but then to generate his palette of... Uh, themes that he would use to compose his music, he would use ideas of symmetry, so he would perhaps reflect the theme that he'd done, or he would rotate it, or shift it up and translate it. Um, so mathematics being, was being used to generate a palette of themes from which he then would start to compose. And interestingly, that, um, that musicians who followed on from Schoenberg, by using this, 
actually uncovered some fascinating, intriguing mathematical structures. Um, for example, Messiaen, um, who was interested in the 12-turn system, um, he discovered an amazing symmetrical object that mathematicians had discovered before him. But nonetheless, by taking two of these 12-turn systems, the permutations, the thing that they generate is a, a mathematical object. It's a strange symmetrical object um, called M12, one of the first so sporadic groups of symmetry. Um, here is, um, in oral form, this beautiful symmetrical object. I think it's very intriguing that his, the sensitivity of a composer like Messiaen to be drawn to such interesting permutations that it's the same sort of structure that we as mathematicians find totally intriguing. Um, that, you know, that, that's what's bubbling underneath. Even subconsciously, he is interested in the same sort of things as I am. But he was also very consciously aware of mathematics. And in another piece, he very deliberately used the power of prime numbers to create a certain effect. Um, in the Quartet for the End of Time, the first movement, Liturgy de Cristal, uh, he wanted to give a sense of timelessness in this piece. And so what he did was to use two prime numbers, these indivisible numbers, um, the number 17 and the number 29. And what he did was to get the piano, the rhythm structure in the piano is a 17-note rhythm sequence. But the harmonic structure of the theme is actually 29 notes. So by the time he's played the rhythm structure, the 17 notes, he restarts the rhythm, but he's only about two-thirds of the way through the harmonic structure. The harmonic structure finishes um, before the rhythm structure's um, started again, and you have to hear the piece 17 times 29 times before they finally link up again. Um, so here, maybe you can hear, listen to the piano, uh, there's a little bit, of the, you can see some of the rhythm here, um, that the way, this sort of asynchronicity of the primes is being used to create this sense of timelessness. could let you play that forever, but um, we won't listen to it to 17 times, 29 times. But um, uh, it, he wasn't the first to use this idea of primes to keep things out of sync. In fact, you find it already being used by nature. There's a very curious insect which lives in the forest in North America that already used this idea of the primes to keep you out of sync of something. Um, this cicada has a very strange life cycle. Um, it lives underground for 17 years doing absolutely nothing. And then after 17 years, these cicadas emerge en masse in the forest, and they, they party away. Um, this is, a, I think, uh, this is the sound of one cicada. You have to multiply this by about 100,000 of these things. The, the sound of the forest is so loud that residents move out. It's so unbearable. They, they party away. They eat the trees. They, they mate. They lay eggs. And then after six weeks of partying, they all die. And the forest goes quiet again for another 17 years. And the residents move back in. Um, now, it seems very curious. 17, a prime number. Is it just a coincidence that they've cho chosen a prime number life cycle to hide underground? Um, well, it seems not. There's another species in another area in North America which hides underground for 13 years and another which hides underground for seven years. So 7, 13, 17, all prime numbers. There's clearly something about this primes that the cicada is using. Now, we're not actually sure quite what it is, but we have a hypothesis. We think it's the same kind of idea as Messiaen in the Quartet for the End of Time, that uh, we've got 17 here, but we think there might have been a predator that also used to appear periodically in the forest, a bit like the harmonic sequence. And what the predator would try and do is to coincide with the cicada so it could gobble the cicadas up. Um, but the cicadas that chose, a nom that chose a prime number year were able to avoid and keep out of sync of the predator. So, for example, if I take a cicada that appears every nine years and a predator that appears every six years, well, they very quickly meet because they meet in year 18, the first number divisible by nine and six. And so very quickly, the cicadas are going to get wiped out. But change that life cycle to a seven-year life cycle, 
for example, the predator still on a six-year life cycle, they're not going to meet in the forest until year 42. And so the primes have helped these cicadas to, to avoid the predator. And it seems in this forest in North America where you have a 17-year life cycle, there was a real competition going on. Who can find the biggest prime? Uh, the clever cicadas won out, and it seems the predator uh, has died out. We don't have any evidence of this predator. Um, well, I played you um, a piece which had a shape hidden behind it, a very strange shape, this sporadic shape uh, called M12. Um, here's another piece. Uh, I want you to try and conjure up in your mind's eye uh, what shape do you think Xenarchus, um, a Greek uh, composer, was using when he composed this cello piece. That was, in fact, a cube. But uh, even I'm hard-pushed to hear a cube hiding inside there. But, um, but Xenarchus, what he wanted to do was the, use the restrictions of the symmetry of the cube. So he put musical ideas that the cello can play, pizzicato, glissandi, on the corners of this cube. And in each different variation, he would do a symmetry of the cube and then read them off in a different order. And somehow the restrictions of the cube gave him the restrictions for composing this piece. Interestingly, Xenarchus, as well as being a composer, um, was also an architect. Uh, and I think architecture is as well somewhere where you find a lot of interest in mathematical structures. You only have to look back at the first architecture built you know, 5,000 years ago, um, the pyramids, the uh, beautiful uh, mathematical shape. And of course, the building of buildings creates new mathematics. Um, if you look in the, the papyri, you find uh, in the Rhine papyrus the volume of a pyramid, a third times the base times the height. Of course, they were interested in that. They wanted to know how much material they needed to build the pyramid. So you get, get this beautiful relationship whether the architecture and the building is generating new mathematics. Those Fibonacci numbers you see also in architecture, if you take the ratio of the fractions you can create by taking one Fibonacci number over the previous one, this series tends towards something called the golden ratio, um, which you can find hidden inside a lot of different structures, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly. Um, so, for example, the Parthenon is said to be built. Why we find it so aesthetically pleasing is because it's got these, this mathematics hiding behind it. Um, if you move to the Renaissance, Palladio, for example, uh, there's something just so special about going to a Palladio villa. You know, what is it that he had tapped into which makes it such an enjoyable space to be in? Well, again, Palladio, we realize the, uh, the, the beauty of mathematics. All the rooms are in whole number ratios to each other. He was tapping into this idea that Pythagoras had already discovered, that whole number ratios are what give you um, notes which have a beautiful harmonic relationship to other, each other. So Palladio's villas are really frozen music. So here, here's an example, for example. If you put a string on the side of each of the rooms and then pluck the strings, the relationship between the sounds... creates a beautiful harmony. So what Palladio had done was to realize Pythagoras' harmonic relationships in the structure of this building. But other architects were drawn to different ways of generating shapes. Um, uh, Le Corbusier, for example, was fascinated in the Fibonacci numbers um, to be able to, to generate interesting relationships. And he associated these with, um, with the body. He believed that Fibonacci numbers expressed the different relationships between a body, and the building was meant to express the, the, the relationship of the body. And so, for example, in La Cité uh, Radieuse, you'll find a lot of Fibonacci numbers hidden inside here. So it's interesting, Palladio and Le Corbusier are exploring relationships of numbers to create their buildings. Um, here's some diagrams of Palladio's of the villas, a lot of symmetry there and whole number relationships. Le Corbusier, when he was experimenting, was trying to make things very asymmetrical, putting them together and using the Fibonacci numbers. And I think you can see that relationship between the asymmetry and asymmetry. Um, there's a Vitruvian man, very symmetrical, but Le Corbusier's version of Vitruvian man is a very asymmetrical thing. 
Architects also, like Dali, were interested in the fourth dimension to create buildings. You think, how can you build a, a building in four dimensions? Um, well, again, you have to do something subtle. You do, what you do is to take a shadow of a shape in four dimensions. So um, if you go to the Arch at La Défense in Paris, um, you get this uh, extraordinary structure, huge structure. This is, in fact, a shadow of a four-dimensional cube sitting in Paris. I'm not sure how many Parisians know they've got a, a four-dimensional cube sitting inside there. But... The idea is, just think about how the Renaissance artists would try to capture a three-dimensional cube on a two-dimensional canvas. What they would do is to draw a square, and they would draw a smaller square inside, and then they would draw up the edges, and then they suddenly would get the sense of depth appearing. It's just a two-dimensional shape, but it somehow is a projection of the three-dimensional cube. Well, this is what's happened at Les Défons. The architect has taken a four-dimensional cube and projected it down into three dimensions, so what you get is a cube inside a larger cube and all the edges joined up, and here we have a shadow of a four-dimensional cube. And I think the interesting structures that mathematicians have generated are, are, are wonderful material for an architect. Uh, when I see Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, it just looks like a Riemannian surface. Or if you go to um, Beijing, the fantastic water cube that they created uh, for the Olympics for the swimming events, um, they got their idea from looking at the shapes that you get inside a foam. What are the shapes? You know, a bubble on its own will produce a sphere, but when you start to put these uh, bubbles together, what different shapes do you get? And recently, we discovered two rather asymmetrical shapes um, which you can put together, which seem to be the most efficient way to make foam. Well, we're not st still quite sure. And Arup used this. So they took a, um, a section of this foam to create this beautiful um, uh, the, the water cube in Beijing. I suppose if I was going to choose one of my favorite uh, build, buildings with mathematics hiding behind it, it'd probably be the Alhambra in Granada, which um, there's a beautiful mathematical games going on inside this building. Um, there's symmetry all over the place. So uh, the Moorish artists denied the opportunity to draw pictures of things with souls, took a much more geometric route, and covered the wall in all these different ways that you can tile um, a two-dimensional surface. But the interesting thing, again, is mathematics can tell you, did they find all the ways to be able to cover the wall. Um, when are two walls that look very different have the same symmetries? And again, here's the power of mathematics to be able to say, actually, there are only 17 different ways that you can tile the wall in the Alhambra. If you produce an 18th one, it will have the same symmetries. It may look visually different, but the underlying symmetries are the same. So for me, this tour that I made over the years studying mathematics has really taught me the power of mathematics to unlock both things in science and in the arts as well. And I love this quote from Galileo, which I think sums up the power of this language. Uh, he wrote, The universe cannot be read until we have learnt the language and become familiar with the characters in which it is written. And it is written in mathematical language, and the letters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which means it is humanly impossible to comprehend a single word. And funny enough, I think that uh, with this new position uh, as a Simone professor for the public understanding of science, maybe I have realized my dream to become a member of the Foreign Office. Because I think in some ways I see this job as an ambassadorial role. The, the world of science is often uh, quite alien to people, but I think more and more it is impacting on our society and it's one that people need to know about. And we need to create bridges between um, society and the world of science. And I would say because the language of science um, is mathematics and mathematics underpins all of those, it, it's, a, it's a great uh, language to have learnt in order to become uh, this ambassador. And I think that uh, because so many issues of things like climate change, the effect of um, uh, different things like stem cell research on all of us, um, it's more and more important that we actually engage with the science and try and to understand what's going on. I think that uh, Charles Simone was very... Uh, present in 1995 to create such a thing uh, as the pro this professorship. Uh, but I think even more so today, it, it, it's incredibly relevant. We had a report here in uh, 2000, uh, the Jenkins report, which tried to identify why there was such a breakdown um, in, in things like the GM debate. Why were people so suspicious of science? And I think the problem was that there wasn't enough dialogue going on between the scientific community, who were very interested in generating their, um, their science, but we need to be able to, to, to talk to society and show them how the science is going to, to affect them. Um, so, but I think that it's very important. We're, the buzzword at the moment is dialogue, that we should have dialogue 
with the public. And I, I certainly think that's important, but I really don't think that you can have dialogue until you've got understanding. And that's why I still think it's an important that it's a professorship for the public understanding of science. It's important for scientists to start by telling people, you know, how can you have a debate about stem cell research if you don't understand what a stem cell is? The nuclear debate, we're now trying to, do, to work out, should we go nuclear with our energy resources? Well, you need to understand, I think, the physics behind it before you can start to engage um, with these important questions. Um, so I still think, uh, th that's not to say that scientists have all the answers, or there isn't a, um, uh, that science isn't, isn't the only thing to consider. I think uh, uh, an interesting example that happened recently, of course, um, is the debate over drug classification. Scientists were able to say, yeah, the relative uh, uh, potency of certain drugs against another and what the classification should be. But I think scientists need to listen and understand this is a dialogue. Drugs isn't just a scientific issue. It is also a political and a social one. And those are also factors which we must include in the debate. But I don't think you can have a debate about the drugs until you've had and understood the science. And I think that's what's fantastic that is happening in Oxford is that we have this fantastic thing, the Department for Continuing Education, which is helping to actually deliver the, the things, the hard things that scientists and the rest of the humanities as well have discovered and trying to find ways to communicate it to people who want to know and be involved in this dialogue and this debate. And I think that we're really at the forefront of trying to, to deliver this education, these things that we've understood um, to the public. I also think it's important not just for us to talk to the public, it's also important for scientists to talk to each other because quite often I will go into one of the other departments and I'll find that actually we're still talking very different languages and I don't quite understand what the other scientist is saying. Um, again, I think Oxford, we're doing incredibly well at breaking down these boundaries. In the mathematics department, we have a fantastic uh, maths and biology uh, research group, which is, uh, you know, we have it, both have interesting problems and interesting ways of looking at things. So one of the things I've tried to do um, over the last year um, is to create something called the Inside uh, Inside Science Oxford podcast, which is helping to bring together um, scientists from across disciplines to talk to each other, to tell ourselves what the interesting science is. And of course, anybody can listen in uh, and find out um, the interesting science that's going on inside Oxford. Um, for me as well, I find that I, uh, at the moment, I just cannot... Uh, 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 you know, it's, it's very difficult... Um, I, I'm a mathematician, brought up as a mathematician, and quite often I get phoned up now to answer questions about uh, sciences like the bio, bio, biological sciences. I, I got phoned up when the Nobel Prize prizes got announced just recently, and they wanted me to come on the news to explain um, what the uh, uh, Nobel Prize for Medicine had been awarded for. Now, you know, I, I don't know. I, it was very difficult. Uh, uh, and this is, you know, you think about the, the, a professorship for the public understanding of humanities, where there's one person which has to answer all the questions, you know, medieval poetry through to um, uh, modern architecture. Um, so I, one of my goals as well is not just... Uh, to try and do it all, but to try and encourage um, those are fant there are some fantastic people who are good at communicating their own subjects here in Oxford, and I think we need to give them as much support and as time as possible to, to, to become ambassadors themselves, because you know, it isn't just one country, the world of science. It's many countries with many different languages. Um, so one of my aims will be to try and involve as many other scientists as well in trying to communicate the excitement of their subject to be able to answer that kind of question that I got. Um, even the mathematical demands I get, I find really difficult to, uh, to, to do all the things that people would like me to do. So uh, the other idea was I, I thought, well, um, I don't have the, the science to clone myself, but what I can do is to get some people to help me. So I've got together this team uh, called Marx's Marvelous Mathematicians. So some of them are, are, are here um, this evening, and they, they helped me earlier on do uh, some wonderful schools events um, uh, Sort of proselytizing um, mathematics, uh, 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 the, the power and wonder of mathematics. Um, so I'm hoping as well to develop, uh, uh, across the other sciences, I think already chemistry has developed the alchemists who are a group of undergraduates. But I think our undergraduates and our graduates are a great resource that we need to use more because they, they're, they're 
excited about their subject and they can communicate that excitement um, to schools. So we've, been, uh, we've done some events in the Barbican uh, last year. Um, I think this is uh, the, the Berkshire show um, with a lot of cows in the background, I think. But, um, uh, so, so I think uh, in- encouraging others at a, at a young age as well to, to get involved in, in um, communicating the excitement of mathematics um, to, uh, to the rest of society is important. But the other important thing as well, you know, I became a mathematician because I love discovering new mathematical discoveries. And one of the things I think which is very special about this professorship is that it encourages you to keep on doing your science. I think that uh, an ambassador needs to spend time at home. You know, not to forget uh, what, what uh, he is ambassador for. So um, I, I'm very lucky, I think, to be in one of the one of the best maths departments um, in the world at the moment, and we're in incredibly exciting times. Um, uh, the mathematics that I'm interested in actually is a theme that's ran under quite a lot of the things I showed you. Um, my obsession is the mathematics of symmetry and trying to understand new symmetries, not just in three dimensions but higher dimensions. So I'm interested in trying to create symmetries and see whether there are patterns between the different symmetrical objects you get. Um, but we have wonderful mathematicians here in Oxford, and I think this is really exciting times. We're, we're hoping to bring the scientists, all to, mathematicians all together into this beautiful new building. This is the, the plans for the new building, um, which will be built on the Radcliffe Infirmary site. And um, uh, it's an exciting time to be a mathematician here in Oxford. Um, and I think that... You know, mathematics uh, is why, you know, I I love discovering new things, but I I think that being a scientist is a combination. It's a combination of discovery, but also communication. And I I think that you, I'm going to, I rather like this quote, which I wanted to show you, which is a mathematician at one of the international congresses in uh, mathematics. um, It really summed up the power of, you know, communication is an incredibly important part of what we do. Um, He said, mathematics is terribly individual. Any mathematical act, whether of creation or apprehension, takes place in the deepest recesses of the individual mind. Mathematical thoughts must nevertheless be communicated to other individuals and assimilated into the body of general knowledge. Otherwise, they can hardly be said to exist. And I think that's the importance. We all do it as scientists, of course, in journals and in seminars and in conferences, but that mathematical idea you have, and that's why I think this job for me is the perfect combination because it allows me to carry on creating new mathematics, but what I love doing is bringing it alive in the minds of other people, and that's when it really begins to live, and the more minds, the better in my mind. Uh, But I think uh, Charles himself, Charles Simone, who's, uh, I'm very uh, honoured that uh, he was able to come all this way to to Oxford to to be here for my inaugural lecture. Um, But I think he summed up very nicely uh, in his manifesto um, what's so important about this professorship. Um, He says, the goal is for the public to appreciate the order and beauty of the abstract and natural worlds, which is there hidden layer upon layer to share the excitement and awe that scientists feel when confronting the greatest of riddles, to have empathy for the scientists who are humbled by the grandeur of it all. I'd like to thank Charles and the University of Oxford for giving me the chance to be an ambassador for the world of science. And in ever, if ever, Charles, you want somebody to join you out in outer space to be an ambassador uh, further beyond our call, I'd be very happy to join you on one of your next trips. Thank you very much.